welcome to Ego Alpha's Profiting from Data podcast with your host, Neil Hurley. Today's episode features an interview with Femi Opiodu, Head of Data Product and Distribution at CLS Group. Femi began his data journey while at Bloomberg, focusing on growing the commodity side of the business across the globe. His time at Bloomberg helped him realize that if the global economy can be likened to the human body, then foreign exchange is the blood in circulation. Having earned his stripes experiencing how effective alternative data can be for commodities, Femi now works with CLS, a data vendor providing unique and relevant alternative data on the FX market since 2002. On this episode, Femi talks about historic events such as the fall of Herstat Bank that acted as a backdrop for the formation of CLS, the focus on capturing flow, volume, and pricing data for the buyer market, and the importance of focusing on executed trades rather than quotes in FX trading data. He also discusses trends and flows in the FX market and what's coming down the line for CLS, including the expansion of available currencies and increasing frequency of data for clients. Please enjoy this dialogue between Femi and your host, Neil Hurley. Femi, thank you very much for joining today, and thank you to our listeners of the podcast. Femi, it'd be great to hear a little bit about yourself and how you got into data and what you were doing prior to CLS. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So my journey into data started almost a decade ago while at Bloomberg. I was in a sales role with a focus on growing the commodity business across different regions. And when I think in more depth about it, my experience there certainly opened up a whole new world of curiosity for me, particularly because the commodity landscape is so huge. And depending on the the country or the client you're speaking with, the conversation could actually be very different. So looking back in a typical week, I would have conversations in the morning with meteorologists or power and gas traders around weather forecasts and how this could impact the price of electricity going forward. And in the afternoon, I could be pitching ship tracking tools or satellite imagery that looked at the shadow an oil storage tank would cast on the ground to indicate how full it was to help get a view of demand and supply. So I've always had to wear multiple hats, but at the same time, there was always one thing that remained constant, um, which was that. And a colleague of mine actually made a very made an analogy that I thought was quite precise. He said, if you take the human body as the global economy, FX is the equivalent of our blood. And I really agree with that because with every time goods exchange hands across different currencies, there needs to be FX trades embedded in that. So when the opportunity came three years ago to help grow the data business at CLS, it was an easy decision for me to make. I completely agree. Prior to Eagle Alpha, I worked in fund management and as an equity investor, and we always watched the currency markets very carefully in terms of carry trades and and Australian dollar versus yen and to see where risk appetite was in currency markets because they they often had a lot of predictive ability relative to to equities. And I would agree um, with all the points that you made I've always thought commodities was really interesting because they were commodity investors were using alternative data before it was called alternative things like satellite and and shipping. What was your experience that commodity events investors were very advanced uh, with their data usage while you were at Bloomberg? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail 
right on the head there. Commodity traders or analysts have always been using alternative data before it, it was coined as its own form. I think in the commodity space, it is quite different, obviously, because you're dealing with physical. So there's an element of physical delivery, storage as well, which, which is a little bit different from other asset classes. So yeah, it, it's something that has probably always been embedded in the trade cycle or, or life cycle um, of commodity transactions. It's, it's very common practice, but obviously now we're seeing that shift in, into other asset classes and its use, I think, would always would only continue to develop, particularly as we're seeing different things happen within the global economy, obviously with the pandemic, the impacts that is potentially having a supply chain and, and, and all the variables as well. Yeah, I agree. A very interesting time today in terms of supply chains and commodities. But back to the world of, of FX and, and uh, CLS, it's a really interesting company. It'd be great to hear a little bit about the background to CLS for our listeners that perhaps haven't come across the company before. Yes, of course. So I'll try and explain how, how CLS was formed. Um, we were created back in 2002 um, when a group of private and public entities came together to protect themselves and their clients from settlement risk. However, the concern for settlement risk started way before that. So as we all know, within the financial markets, we've had a series of significant crises. And one of the high profile FX settlement failures was actually with a German bank called Herstadt um, back in 1974. On June 26th, um, that same year, due to its deteriorated financial health, German regulators withdrew its bank's license. And these caused the significant impact around the globe for FX settlement. So by by 4.30 p.m. local time, when the regulators revoked its unfortunately, some banks had already undertaken foreign exchange transactions with Herstat and had already paid Deutschmark, hoping to receive U.S. dollars later on that day. But obviously, this never happened because the bank had already collapsed. And as you can expect, this happened. This resulted in a ripple-on effect across the entire industry. So I would say that was probably the beginning of the journey in terms of the industry trying to find a way to mitigate settlement risk. But this only really came to life in 2002 when CLS was formed. So today we see, we settle approximately um, just under six trillion US dollars um, worth of trades. And we are well established as a trusted ecosystem for the FX markets. That's a significant number and a very interesting uh, history to the company. That five and a half or that five and a half, six trillion uh, dollar amount that you settle or that you have visibility on the settlement each day, what does that represent of the global amount? Yeah, good question. So we try to leverage the BIS triannual survey that is produced every three years. Of course, with the FX market, it, it is quite tricky. It's not exchange or it's predominantly OTC on some other asset classes. So it is quite difficult to go to one place to get that full full picture in terms of what's happening globally across all the different currencies. So the only thing we, we pretty much have is the triangle BIS survey, which is put together on a specific day every three years. So the analysis which we've done with that is, at least for the currencies, we settle, we estimate, we see over 50% of the activity. Interesting. Is there any other 
businesses or entities trying to do something similar to CLS in terms of solving for this visibility or reducing this risk around settlement? Yeah, so they are definitely a number of entities within the space, but none of them have the clout or, or the reach that CLS, simply because of the the work required to have a solution across multiple currencies it is a lot. So we have relationships with central banks and, and you can imagine the regulatory process of getting things in place um, It is cumbersome. So there are a number of local regional players that, that try to provide an a settlement service, but these only targets the local currencies um, for those specific regions, nothing to the scale um, of CLS. Understood. So on the settlement risk side, Femi, are the clients the central banks only? So this is separate to the data products, but on, on the settlement side, is it only central banks or do you also have relationships with the with the commercial banks as well in, in relation to settlement? Do they use your services there? Yeah, so I can break it down in terms of the participants within the CLS network from a settlement standpoint. So at the top of the tree, we have our settlement members, and that concludes of or consists of the big banks that you all we all know of globally. We, we have a full list available on our website, but pretty much in any bank, any big bank you can think is probably a CLS settlement member. So obviously, if I wanted to drop some names, you could think of Goldman Sachs, State Street, JP Morgan, and the list goes on. Underneath the, the settlement members, we have what we call third parties, and that includes funds, corporates, and non-bank financial institutions. And if we look at the third party setting through CLS, we have just over 25,000 active. Interesting. Yeah, the reach is extensive. So just switching to the data side and what you know, yourself and ourselves focus on um, in our, every week, what is getting into a little bit more detail on the underlying data? What specifically is the data and how do you gather it? Yeah. So again, as, as I mentioned prior, um, the FX market is, is a different beast on its own mainly because of the fact that it is OTC and you have a long list of different venues and, and platforms trades can be executed on. So there is data out there. It's very difficult to have that single source that, that covers a, a, a big portion of the market. So what we tried to do was to deliver precisely that. Something which we identified very early on was the, the lack of volume data within FX globally. So of course, the information which we have is based on the settlement, the settlement data that we need yeah, in order to provide that service. And we've basically been able to feed on that to provide data in relation to volume, in relation to flow, looking at transactions going through different counterparty types, and also pricing information, taking a look at date, um, transactions that have actually been executed, not just transactions that have been quoted um, on a specific venue. So I would say that those are probably the three um, broad groups um, of data sets we have volume flow and okay and in terms of how you're you're bringing that data in at what sort of frequency into CLS so we in terms of the data coming into CLS it happens pretty much either instantaneously as the traders execute we have certain third parties or, or members who who send it a few minutes after or perhaps in batches in terms of 
the data sets we then go on to produce to the market um, to provide that added level of transparency. We've made our data available across a variety of different delivery cadence to cater for the specific client's use case. So we started off with an end-of-day product, and we have since been able to ramp up to to, to an intraday high-frequency data set. So we started off with end-of-day. We ramped up to, to an hourly feed. And, and actually, earlier on this year, we've taken that uh, a notch up, and we, we're now delivering some of our data sets actually every five minutes. And in terms of your users, what are they require that type of frequency, or do you see a big difference in terms of maybe what trading platforms are looking for versus funds versus central banks? Yeah, so of course, the, the use case does vary. If I look at our typical buy side entity, which would probably be, it could be a, an asset manager or, or hedge fund. The interest there generally tends to be quite intraday, simply because they're looking for information that they can use to potentially generate alpha with, within you know, the specific currency they have an interest in. If I look at the demand we have across some technology companies or trading platforms. The interest probably tends to be more on the end of day data sets, simply because a lot of the time the use cases is based around trying to get a view of their market share in comparison to where the where they sit in comparison to the wider wide. For banks, it's a variation of both, but generally we tend to see um, a lot of use cases around getting that additional level of information so they can have more detailed conversations with their clients with regards to what where volumes or, or flow um, for specific currencies are and how that has evolved over time. For central bank, the interest is is probably a little bit more holistic. They're looking at the long-term movements um, or shifts in, in, in their currency and, and how different participants behave within the markets. So yeah, in, in those cases, their use case tends to be a bit more historical. They look for a lot of data to to perform long-term analysis with as well. Okay, that makes sense. And you said to me before that one of the differences uh, between CLS data and other types of FX data is that, is that you focus on executed trades rather yeah. than quotes. What's the importance of that? And can you explain for listeners that perhaps aren't as familiar with FX markets why that's important? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And recently, you, you may have come across a, a number of topics within the space around last look, for example. So I think one of the key elements of FX that still exists today is the ability is the is for the market maker to have that that last look, meaning they they have the ability to change or, or accept a specific trade or decline the trade from any of their clients or, or price takers. So that is quite a big thing, right? Because in the FX markets, there is a lot of data out there around, well, there's a lot of quotes data around. Execution makes it factual. It means that has actually been what has happened for those specific pairs across those specific counterparty types. So in terms of being able to get that true view um, of the market, looking at what has been executed is absolutely key. Obviously, quote information is, is also important. Order book information is important. But to get that complete view, you also want to see what has actually been executed um, in the market as well. So that's something which we provide that is, is not as widely available. Okay. And what is the what are the type of trends 
that you're seeing currently in your data? And what is your research saying? So at a very high level, we have certainly seen a reversal um, of previous long trends in flows. And when I say flows, we're looking at, at funds in particular here. Funds that have been trading some G10 currencies versus the US dollars in particular, we have seen at least since the start of this year, funds at an aggregate level being net long US dollars in comparison to Japanese yen, um, for example. And, and that actually, that, that has been a, a complete reversal in terms of what we've seen for previous years. And those sort of insights, are you publishing on those to users of CLS data? Do you, do you put out content and, and research pieces? Yes. So we, we have a, a data science team in-house, and that is something which we particularly look to provide additional color on. We tend to really start leadership pieces every few months within the year to talk about what we're seeing within CLS's data, potentially some, some ad- additional insights that can be derived by looking at CLS's data alongside wider traditional uh, market data as well, whether it's within the FX space or looking at other assets. Sounds very interesting. And what's pe- if people want to access those sort of types of insights, do they have to be a subscriber to CLS or do you provide a certain amount of content for marketing purposes? Yeah, so with regards to the thought leadership pieces, that is available for free. We are also in a very well unique position in the sense that because of what we see in the markets, there, there just tends to be a lot of interest in our data, particularly from academics. So yeah, there are tons of papers out there, white papers that speak to the microstructure of the FX industry, and that leverages a lot of our data as well. So that is data that that we haven't even contributed to per se, um, apart from our data being used. It's been done completely independently. So that that is available to mm-hmm. to everyone, and our pieces as well are, are completely free of charge, and we make that available on our website. Great, and. The, to remind people to go to CLS's website and get some more insights into what your data is saying. The, on, you mentioned different types of firms and the use cases. It'd be good just to understand a little bit more about the types of data consumers, if you like, uh, that are working yeah. with you. Um, so to your point earlier, so it seems that the main types are you know, the banks, uh, the, fin- uh, the financial institutions, the central banks. What, what are some of the other types of firms that you're working with? Yeah, so we, we also have, I would say, probably the two significant parties we work with would be the banks. So a lot of them are our are, are settlement members who are looking to get that added view of the market. We also work very closely with the buy side. Our initial conversations kicked off with the more, I guess, more sophisticated buy-side entities. So you're looking at hedge funds, you're looking at systematic quant funds. We've definitely seen a shift. We've started to talk to to funds that are moving more towards the quantumental approach as well. We've also had a few conversations with corporates. That is also in the increase for sure. And yeah, with, with regards to central banks, as I mentioned prior, the use case generally tends to be more historical to look at, to try and understand in a bit more detail the evolution of their specific currency pair, what participant types are, are dominant and across what regions um, they're dominant in as well. It seems that your data is getting very good traction with funds, as you said, and we've seen a lot of interest in your data uh, through Eagle Alpha. People think about trialing and evaluating your data. 
what is the complexity and the duration of some of that analysis for people to arrive at their conclusions in, in terms of alpha testing? What's been your experience as a data vendor? Yeah, so that is that 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 is an interesting question. So typically speaking, when we get clients set up, we we really want to ensure we're doing it at the right time when the clients have the capacity to really dive deep um, into the data to understand its value in a bit more detail. So we tend to not jump the gun and, and make sure we, we get them set up at a time that is. But also what we try to do in the process is we try to provide um, as much ammunition um, as we possibly can to ensure that journey of discovery is as smooth as possible. So whether that is through providing some example use cases, some white papers, um, that have been written up with by academics or by ourselves that leverage our data. That is something which we make readily available. We've also set up partnerships with selling it with some entities within the space to also help within that journey, depending on, on the client um, themselves. So, for example, we have an, an ongoing relationship with SigTech, which is an offshoot um, of Reverend Howard. They provide backtesting engine for, for clients. And so for certain end users who potentially do not have the right infrastructure on their side, that is an avenue they can look at. But for those who have the right setup, then yes, we will just provide them with the data alongside the use cases that we've already made available. So our, our typical trial period would last roughly about 60 days, and that would include all the history that we have available for that specific data set without the live feed, of course. So when people are, are trialing FEMI, are you typically giving them lagged, lagged data for their backtesting? Correct. Yeah, okay. And the is there a user group where you're seeing a higher conversion of trialing? Is there any more detailing around that where you're seeing more success of trials in certain types of strategies versus others? Yeah, so I would say on, at a high level, we, we probably get a lot more success with the quantitative systematic strategies because they seem to understand how, how the data can be used to enrich their existing setup. I would say that is, yeah, that, that's probably the, most, the, the best we see across the quantitative space. That that's where we see a lot of traction. They get they understand where the value is in, in the data sets. And in terms of the the sort of year ahead, what next for CLS? What's going to be some of the main developments with your data products on a 12-month view? So there are a couple of things which we are working on. One thing which we've already started to put in place this year is the expansion of currency pairs that we're making available to the markets. We started off with 33 We've already ramped that up to 40, and the journey doesn't stop there. We're looking at potentially adding some emerging market currencies as well. And we're hoping to do this by leveraging um, some of our other um, services, such as CLS Nets, which is a, a netting calculation service. We're already seeing some growth across some of the emerging market currencies like offshore Rumimbi, Russian ruble, and Turkish lira. So at some point, the hope will be to make that available within the data sets as well. Something which we've also been looking at is increasing the frequency of our data, because that's a request we always seem to get around making the data available a lot sooner. So we have started that journey with the, with the five-minute data set I mentioned prior. Something which we have done, which which what, something which we introduced was a little bit innovative, is how we deliver that product. So taking a little bit of a step back, we have 
some rules that we, we, we've embedded um, within all our data products to ensure we maintain the confidentiality of all CLS participants. And those rules speak around anonymity and aggregation of our data. Long story short, the the more granular we go in producing CLS's data, there could be some that there is a, a balancing act in terms of the the amount of data we're able to show for more high frequency data. So what what we have tried to do to account for that is to create a dynamic approach to the delivery. So say for example, we have a period where we don't have enough trading information to report data. We hold onto the data and carry off, carry over that data onto the next reporting window, which by default becomes larger. So rather than looking at five minutes, it becomes 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And we hold onto the data and then we report it at the time when we have enough information. So by doing that, we're solving for two things. Um, the first is we are providing the data as quickly as we can and the second is we're providing the most complete data that we've ever provided before. Because historically, what we've done is we report within intervals. And if there is not enough data to report within one interval, we skip it and move on to the next one. And we forget about everything that has happened prior. But now we're taking that data along with us. So actually, with our new data sets, our clients are getting way more information. We've done some analysis on our side, and we can actually see if we look at fund activity, for example, we're seeing 25% more information with this new dynamic delivery in comparison to, to, to the version that isn't dynamic. So that, those are definitely a few exciting things that, of course, we're, we're looking to roll out across all the data sets as well that clients have shown very strong interest. Sounds very interesting. On, on, on the point on anonymity, it's always an important compliance discussion, anonymity, anonymity excuse me, and aggregation. So does that mean if there was an executed trade where Deutsche Bank was buying yen and Commerce Bank was selling yen, that you would just show that as a German bank in your database on, on both sides and that you don't disclose who the actual entity is? Yeah, so we, we definitely do not disclose who the entity is. Within our data sets today, we group them into four key economic segments. We have banks, corporates, non-bank financial institutions, and funds. So, yeah, they will fall in, into one of those segments. Understood. But, but the key, one of the key rules we follow around aggregation is, yeah, there needs to be a certain number of trades within any given reporting period for us to publish the data. If there isn't enough, then we don't show the data. But obviously, with a dynamic way of doing things, we're now carrying that over to the next reporting cycle. So we, we are technically including everything now and pushing that out as quickly um, as we possibly can. Understood. So as an experienced data vendor and somebody that's been around data markets for a long time now, what do you think are some of the most important things that we could be doing either for ourselves as an alternative data aggregator or data buyers could be doing to make the market, the overall marketplace for data function better? What are some of the, the pain points or some of the things we could be doing better in your view? Um, I think probably the key aspect is providing as much ammunition or, or tools to potential clients um, so they can understand the value of your data a, a, lot, a, a lot more quickly. Because the reality is there is just so much 
data out there. Obviously, with, with the growth of alternative data, that there is a lot to take a look at. And from speaking with, with a lot of our customers, they probably have hundreds of data sets to review with, within any given year. First of all, in order to get your data ahead of the queue, you need to be able to show the value in the data um, as quickly as possible. And then when you know, the clients then has the time, they need to have pretty much everything because there, there isn't a lot of time to spend because there's just a lot to go through. So yeah. I'd say one of the key elements is ensuring you're providing as much information that pertains to, to the value um, of the data, um, which of course would include the likes of, of white papers, perhaps maybe some strategies that speaks to, to, to some of them. In our experience, we've noticed, which, which of course I'm sure a lot of people would say the same, is when you have white papers, um, that talk about certain strategies. Those strategies tend to die out <laughs> after the white paper goes live, which is quite positive because it shows there is value because people are starting to embed those strategies with, within their, within how they look at them. So obviously, it, it's about it's about showing clients potentially what can be done, and hopefully that helps their idea generation to think about new things that can be derived um, from the data as well. I completely agree. I, I think now there's a lot of importance um, for data buyers pre-meeting or pre-discussion with the data vendor. To your points, they, they expect to see a lot more. They expect to see a sample of the data. They expect to see a due diligence question there. They expect to see white papers because their time sh- the data consumers are time short. And they have so much data that they need to review that they need to be able to do a side-by-side very quickly before they choose to resource engagement and trialing and backtesting. I think the, the message from our side overall is positive. We're seeing an overall improvement in what data vendors, which is a good thing. And it's correlating with engagement between data buyers and data vendors. The other thing is generally the conversion from trial to purchase is going up. So when people do choose to trial a data set, they're seeing better uh, conversion. And I know you put a lot of effort, CLS and both yourself personally, to make it easier for people to discover and uh, understand your data prior to speaking with you. Femi, I wanted to say thank you. It's been very interesting today to listen uh, and learn more about CLS. It is data to us that we're seeing a lot of demand in as a firm. We introduced flow data as a category last year and CLS has been a standout data vendor within within the, the flow category. So wishing you every success in the year ahead and uh, thank you very much for your time thanks for having me thanks for me that's a wrap for this episode of profiting from data thank you for listening this podcast series is brought to you by eagle alpha the pioneer in alternative data to learn about eagle alpha solutions for data vendors and buyers please visit eaglealpha.com